London, Las Vegas or something? And I, and, I, and I said, no, no, I'm actually speaking in London. I'm going to be doing it. So, you know, I'm actually doing it on Zoom. And she thought that was kind of neat. And, but it is it's kind of neat. And uh, actually, um, so j just in the next couple of weeks, uh, so I got tonight, I'm, I'm, speaking, I'm speaking in London. Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be leading a meeting uh, up in Oregon. And uh, not this Saturday coming up, but two weeks from today, I'm actually going to be giving a talk out in Bakersfield. I get to drive out there to do that one. And it's just kind of, you know, it's just kind of fun, you know, it's just this whole thing, you know, we talk about having, having a host of friends and, 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 and being able to meet some of us as we trudge the road of happy destiny and all that kind of stuff that we hear about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and to have this kind of connection nowadays. It's really, it's really kind of, it's, it's just kind of an amazing thing the way technology is, has brought us to this point where we are today. And uh, it's, it's just, it's just kind of fun. And I, I, I actually, um, I, I enjoy the, the Zoom platform a little bit. I like to have a little bit of fun with it. Uh, I know some people go, oh, you know, it's like they're going to hear a speaker and maybe all they do is talk about the whole time. I'm going to try to have a little bit of fun with the format, uh, with the platform. And you know what? It'll either work or it won't. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but that's just the way it is. I like to try to, I try to utilize the spiritual tools that I'm giving. And, uh, you know, maybe some people don't consider uh, Zoom a spiritual tool. I happen to. Uh, that's just the way I, I look at things a lot of the times. Um, you know, I, 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 one of the things that I do um, when I'm sponsoring somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous when they're new is what I'll do is I'll get a hold of them and we'll get together. And I just do basically a one-on-one -on -one book study with the guys I sponsor. One of the things that I do is I make them get a dictionary and I have them, we look up words in the dictionary and I consider the dictionary a spiritual tool. And that's just kind of the way I try to look at things, you know, and, and, and just to let you know, um, I absolutely love Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my sobriety birth date is December 19th of 1988. Uh, I'm a little over 33 years sober. Uh, I got sober when I was 24 years old, and I didn't. I don't think I got here a day too early. Um, I was dying of this disease when I came in here, and uh, was uh, I was just I, to say I was willing to do anything is kind of an understatement. What I was is like one of the things they used to say when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot they they go, if you're new, we wish you desperation. And I've always liked to say that that I was desperate probably a good three years before I got sober. And that desperation wasn't enough for this alcoholic. I had to be hopeless. When I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988, December 19th of 1988, um, I can't tell you what made that day any other different than any other day. And my last year out there in 1988 was a salty year. I don't know what your last year was like out there, but my last year was a pretty tough year. Um, I, I didn't do any of the stuff that you suggested because I thought it would work. I did it because... I didn't know what else to do. And, and, and I think one of the greatest things that I could hear from somebody when they come to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, the three favorite words I love to hear from somebody new is, I don't know. I don't know anymore. Because those are the words that make people like me start to do things that, that, that I don't think are going to really help. But because I'm, I'm hopeless and willing to do anything, that's the way it works for me. And, uh, you know, and I, and I love the fact that some of the, some of the guys that I sponsor that I'm working with or stuff like that are here tonight. Uh, uh, Sean's here. My, 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 one of my old sponsors, Billy G from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, whoop, whoop. you know, he was my sponsor back in the day. I got to give him a little kudos. We used to have a joke when we would, when I would go out and we'd give talks and stuff like that. And we'd go on panels. And every time uh, you mentioned somebody, uh, they had to give you a quarter. It's 2022. It's up to a buck now. So both Sean and Billy each owe me a buck at the moment. Actually, that's $2 each now because I both mentioned their names twice, you know, and anyway, that's just what it is. You know, it's, it's always a good deal. It's always a good deal. And, and I love Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and uh, I didn't come through the doors with that attitude. I really didn't, you know, so I gave you my sobriety date. 
Um, I, I told you, obviously, um, I sponsor people. I mentioned that Sean was my sponsor, uh, was, uh, somebody I sponsor. Um, I have people, I have a sponsor. My sponsor is a guy by the name of, of, of Bob Fisher. Uh, I, can use, I can break his anonymity. He told me I could. And he was a gentleman that's been sober uh, longer than I have. And he used to run central office at the, in the Valley. And he did that for almost 20 years up until about uh, five or six months ago, where he finally retired at the age of 87 years old. You know, he was doing it just to kind of fill in for a little bit. He still kept the commitment for another 18, 19 years after he was just filling in for a little while. And I miss being able to kind of touch bases with central office, but that's just the way it is. And so I have a sponsor. I sponsor guys, my guys, sponsor guys. And, uh, and, and, and you know, it, it's, that's just the way the chain of Alcoholics Anonymous works, you know, and, 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 I, and I love what happens around here. Um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something um, just just recently. Now, when uh, Pax asked me to do this, um, he was actually out here in Los Angeles coming out here to, to, to hear uh, a gentleman, I think, that had spoken on Zoom at one point, uh, or maybe you heard him live at a convention at one point, uh, uh, Carl M. from Covina. Uh, he, had, he, had, he was uh, speaking at our one of my home groups, which is the Dunsmore Synodate Speaker Meeting in Walker Senna. Uh, the picture you see behind me, the 12 step and the serenity prayer and all that kind of stuff behind me, that's actually right behind the podium. And like I said, I'm going to drive to have some fun with this, with this platform we got here. So that's a picture I got. So I pull it up there. And, uh, and he came, they came out to hear him. And as a result of us going out to dinner afterwards, because I believe also that the fellowship that we have isn't just in the isn't in the just in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. They happen before the meetings. They happen going out for coffee after the meetings. Those kind of things. We got talking, and it turns out that they said, "Hey, would you be willing to to, to do this uh, on Saturday?" They actually shot it to me through Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And it was just like, "Well, yeah, of course, I'd love to do this." And that's the way it was. And that's how I ended up being your speaker here today. Uh, but anyway, one of the things is, is that this is this is my this is this is this is my hope that today in the, the 55 or 60 minutes that you guys have given me to share my story with you here today. This this is this is my hope. I'm hoping that I tell some stories or, or something like that. And maybe you might say to yourself or might recover what's going on in my life and things like that today and what's happening. And maybe you'll say to yourself at the end of this talk, you know what? I did that. Or even better yet. Maybe I'll say some stuff and you'll say to yourself, I felt that way. Or this is my great hope. This is my biggest hope that when I'm done talking or somewhere in the middle of my talk, you might say to yourself, maybe this thing can work for me too. And you might think to yourself, wow, man, that's really deep. That's really heavy. That's really big, man. Where did you, how'd you come up with that stuff? I'll tell you a secret. I read it in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's actually not only just in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's in the very, very, very beginning of the book, in the preface. And when, when I started working with, with uh, Sean about a year ago, uh, one of the things that I do is I give my guys, especially people who have been around for a while, um, I'll give them what I call the set-aside prayer. If you've never heard the set-aside prayer, it's really basic. There's different variations of it, but the one that, that I use goes something like this. Um, God, please help me to set aside everything I think I know about you everything I think I know about me, everything I think I know about this program and everything I think I know about these steps for a new experience in you, God, a new experience in me, in this program, in these steps and, and, and on. But it's just about having an open mind and having a new experience. And I'll throw that to, to my guys. And one of the things is I say, we're going to go through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I sat there and since I, I told my guy that, I said, I'm going to start doing that. And so I broke open the, uh, the, the preface to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I read it. And it's the very last, it's on the second page of the preface of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says, this is what happens when you get a copy of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and you're reading the personal stories in the back of the book. And just keep in mind that when they were actually printing and sending out the book back in 1939, 
they were not, they didn't have the opportunity like we have right now of having meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. They were assuming that the only be able, the only way to be able to, to, to identify and compare what's going on was through the stories. So technically, when we do this, when we're when you go to a speaker meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's just like reading some of the stories in the back of the book, reading Bill's story or Dr. Bob's nightmare. Or, or, or the, the, you know, the acceptance is the answer, or, or whichever book, you know, the unbeliever, or whichever book you like. I don't even think it's in the book anymore, but that's just what I'm talking about. We read these stories, and it's about identification. And so it's like when I read that, I thought to myself, you know, it's like I asked for an open mind, and the very first thing that happened was I cracked open the book, and in 32 years of sobriety, I had a new experience in the book. And I like to believe that I'm always a student of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and that the things that I, that, that, that I experience around here, that I'm always open, that, 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 I, that I'm never just a, 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 that I'm not just like, quote unquote, like a teacher of the stuff, that I'm a student of the game, you know, that I'm always just a rank and file member of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and I got to keep that in mind. And you know what? I, I love AA. And, and I hope that, that, that if you're new here and I know normally I, what I usually do is I usually ask how many people today we got about, we got about maybe it says 59 people on the bottom of my screen. I feel there might be a few scattered people that are doubles and triples. So I'm saying we probably got about anywhere from 65 to 70 people here tonight. And can I, if I could see the hands of people with like less than years sobriety, can I see the hands of people with less than years sobriety there? I'm seeing a few hands. Excellent. Excellent. And I say, welcome. And to me, uh, I, I, I'm always saying I'm sharing for you guys, you know, and that's what we do around here. I'm sharing for you guys, because when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, um, I needed to hear from the people that were sharing for the newcomers, you know, and I, I, I don't know about you, but when I go to speaker meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have expectations. I don't know if you have expectations of me here tonight, but I have expectations of a speaker when I go to speaker meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm looking for three basic things. I want to laugh. I want to cry and I want to hear the magic of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know about anybody else. I want a lot for my dollar. I really do. And then I want to go out for coffee. Like I mentioned that we did last Sunday and talk crap about the speaker. That's what I like to do. And that's just something that I enjoy doing. And, and I encourage it. I encourage it. But one of the things is, is over the course of time, over the course of years, I've heard a lot of speakers say this and, and they say something like this. They all say, you all know what it's like to drink and get loaded out there. So I'm just going to talk about sobriety because you all know. And to me, I believe that's a disservice to everybody that's new in Alcoholics Anonymous, everybody that raised their hand that was new or anybody that even didn't raise your hand. If you just happened to be in your first year, because when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous and I would hear those people tell their stories about about sobriety and how great it was for them and all the spiritual insights that they've gotten, I didn't hear anything. And there's one basic reason why is because I didn't have any recovery. And if I don't have any recovery, how am I supposed to identify with these people? But then, then we would get these speakers in there and they would tell you their drunk logs and their drug logs. And they would talk about the mayhem that they created and what happened out there and how they came into Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of doing these things that we've learned around here. They were able to get and stay sober when they were unable to get and stay sober on their own. Um, I don't know about anybody else here, but what I want to hear at a speaker meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous is what I call the bedtime story. Uh, you know what? I want to hear how the monster was killing you. I want to hear how the disease of alcoholism was eating you alive. And, and as a result of that, you came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as a result of doing these things that we talk about around here, not just talking about it, but doing them, because it says practical application. By doing these things, the monster got bested. 
And I don't care how many times I might hear a speaker, if they tell that story like that, you know what? I'm I, I, In the beginning, I'm almost on the edge of my seat going, going, is the monster going to win this time? Is the monster going to win? And even though I know the outcome of the story, a lot of the time from these people, I'm still amazed. I'm still amazed when I hear about the recovery and about how as a result of these doing these things, they have come from the gates of insanity or death to where to the point where they're telling their story, where they're carrying the message to the alcoholic, people like me, who is incapable of getting this message through any other way other than through the identification of the stories in AA. We are a storytelling society. And we forget that, you know, we forget that. At least I, I, maybe not everybody forgets that, but I, I think it's lost in, 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 in over the course of the years sometimes. And I love that. I love that. So I'm going to try to do my best to tell you, as, as you know, that the, the, the old standard formula, what I was like, you know, you know the, the, the horror of my life, what happened as a result of doing, of coming into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and identifying and doing the things that you suggest around here, the steps of AA, praying to God, being a service, giving of myself, doing these things. I've gotten to the point before I, to where I sit before you right now today. And then hopefully, like I said, just hope. My, my big hope, not, it doesn't even have to be a massive amount of hope. I'm, my hope is that you just get a little bit of hope in the story I'm going to tell you today. Because if you're as hopeless as I was when I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's like a little bit of hope is oceans. And that's all I need when I came in here today. And like I said, I'm going to tell you uh, what I was like out there. And, uh, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm, you know, I grew up in a place called La Crescenta. I actually live on the street where I was, where I was born and raised. And, and I can actually uh, stand up. My 92-year-old dad, I saw him a couple hours ago. He gets to see his grandkids on a regular basis and that kind of stuff. I still live on the street where I, where, where I practiced all of my, my debauchery or whatever you want to call it, you know. And uh, what it was is that this is where this is where I grew up, you know, and uh, and, and, and it, 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 I call Walker Santa kind of an upper. I call it a high end blue collar, low end white collar neighborhood. That's how I classify uh, Locker Santa. And, and it seemed to me that when I was growing up, I didn't I didn't do very well academically. I don't know if anybody identifies with this particular emotion, uh, but I, I'm with my friend Nancy. Uh, Nancy Ann calls is a D stop student, which basically means that I deserve an F, but they're tired of looking at me. I don't know if there's anybody in here tonight that was thrilled to be getting D minuses. I used to love D minuses. At least it meant I passed, you know? Uh, I'm also not a very athletic person. Um, you, you can't see me right now, but I'm about five foot six. But I, I don't know if you remember when they would pick like Dodger teams and, and softball teams and soccer teams and football teams and those kind of things, you know? And, and the thing was, is that I was never a team captain. Um, I was never first string. I was never second string. I was, I, it got down to the point where there'd be like two of us left and they go, you know what? You take David and we'll take Susie with the crutch. And it's just like, man, I don't want to play anyway. And you know what they're doing, don't you? They're publicly humiliating me. Now I don't feel like I fit in. I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like I'm a part of, I don't feel like that, that, that I'm as good as any of these things. But the thing is, my God, don't point it out in a public forum, but I'll tell you something. It's really, it's really amazing about the, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know this now in hindsight, hindsight is 2020, you know what? And the thing is, is that I know that today, but I don't know it today because I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I just hung out here for a while and through osmosis, I changed. What happened was, is I did the work around here. I did the steps. I shared with another person. As a result of that, I can look back on it now. And again, it's 2020 and I can see that. But the truth was, is I just didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I belonged. I felt like people were better than me. 
Uh, my parents grew up in the Depression era. My dad, like I said, he's 92 years old. But my dad uh, grew up in, like, like he's, he was born in 1930. And so my dad's idea of love is not brand new school clothes. My dad's idea of love is not um, saying that he loves me. You know, it's not something I actually got out of him later on in life. But, you know, when I actually got him to say it to me. But in the beginning, it was just like my dad's idea of love is not those. My dad's idea of love is there's meat in the freezer. My dad's idea of love is that you get to live in a place like Walker Santa, a nice, safe neighborhood, basically. That's my dad's idea of love. Um, I, I was like, this is always fun. I don't get to tell, tell the story very often, which you guys gave me a lot of time. So I'm going to tell you this one. And this was like one year, I was probably eight or nine years old. And I don't know if you ever had Christmas coming up and you got the impression that you were going to get whatever you asked for for Christmas that year. And uh, this one particular year, um, I told Santa Claus, whatever you want to say, I telegraphed it out to the universe. I wrote the letter, told, whispered it to my mom or whatever, that I wanted a set of walkie talkies for Christmas. And somehow it came down through the chain of, of, of information that I was going to get what I asked for for Christmas. So on Christmas Day, when I was eight or nine years old, um, I get underneath the Christmas tree and I pop open. I open the box for my Christmas present. I open it. And inside the box, it's not a set of walkie talkies. What it is, is it's, it's, it, it's one walkie uh, that my dad had gotten at a thrift store at a garage sale. So it wasn't like, you know, with walkie talkies, you got to have two. You have to have two if you want to have fun and play play army or whatever it is, or you want to play that you're spies or whatever, or anything like that. And all of a sudden I look at my dad and it's just like, even at eight or nine years old, I'm like, what am I going to do with this? And he says, find the person who has the other matching thing. And it's like, I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that I'm an alcoholic because I got a walkie for Christmas, but it kind of gave me the impression that I didn't deserve nice things, you know, and then and that, that kind of stuff, you know, and like I told you, um, I didn't, I, 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 I'm a D-stop student. I'm not, I'm, I don't think I'm very smart. Um, I don't have the right clothes. My parents bought all my clothes at thrift stores, which is very cool today. It was not cool even a little bit when I was a kid um, and all these kind of different things. And uh, you know what, I, I, like I said, I just didn't fit in and I didn't feel like I was good enough. And again, it's 2020. And what happened was, is that, um, you know what, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we get nicknames in AA. Uh, I know a guy they call, uh, uh, actually, he's here today, non-controversial Steve, Steve S right there. We used to call him non-controversial Steve. Uh, you can see my, 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 my old sponsor, uh, uh, Billy, Billy, Billy G, but he's Ballet Billy, you know, and we get nicknames in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I, I, there's a guy, we, we never late Jim, who went to our local clubhouse and never late Jim. The reason they called him never late Jim, he was 10 minutes late to every meeting he went to, you know. The reason why is because he was in school and he get out of he get out of class like seven thirty. Meaning he started at eight. He'd always come in late, but that's why they called him Never Late Jim. You know, so in Alcoholics Anonymous, as you can see in my in my in my box, it says uh, David D. Treehouse David. And if you happen to see the flyer online, he asked me. He goes, "What do you what do you want me to call you?" And you, you call me David Treehouse David. That's fine. Everybody calls it says it's license plate on my car, and that's my nickname in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason they call me Treehouse David is because I spent a brief period of time that I was out there drinking, getting loaded, living in a tree house that I built in my parents' front yard. And uh, that brief period of time was 10 years. Now, that just kind of gives you an idea that I don't fit in and I don't play well with others. And I just don't, I don't feel like I belong. You know, what happened was I only, I just wanted my own room. That's all it was. I just wanted my own room. And what happened was is I ended up uh, uh, building this tree house in my parents' front yard. And when I was done, it was actually pretty nice. It was a room. It was about eight feet wide. It was about 15 feet long. I made it so you could stand up in it. I tar papered the roof. 
I made it so it wouldn't leak in the rain. I ran an extension cord up there. And I, basically what I had was I had my own little place in the sky. Now stop and think about what I just described to you for just a moment of room eight feet wide and 15 feet long. What did I just described to you, a cell. I love that. There's a line in what I call the best kept secret in the big book, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says we live in a self-imposed crisis. Nobody did this to me. I did it to myself, you know, and that's the thing. It's, so it's like, you know, here I, I built this, I built this cell up in, this, in this, this, this room up in this tree, 20 feet off the ground in my parents' front yard. And it was just like, I just wanted my own room. That's all it basically was. What happened was, is that I, I was up there one day, a couple weeks after I finished it, and a guy from up the street who I, I kind of knew, his name was Mark. And Mark was like the coolest guy I knew. Mark had hair down to the middle of his back. Mark drank and did drugs. He partied. He had girlfriends and money. And basically what he said was, he was calling my name up, up out in the ground. He's like, David, hey, David. And I look out there and I'm thinking, what, does he want to beat me up? I mean, what's he calling my name for? And he says, hey, David, uh, do you want to party? And what I heard was, do you want to hang out with the coolest guy you know? And, and I said, absolutely. And, and he came up there that day and I caught a buzz. And it wasn't just a little beady buzz. It was a great big buzz around the top of my head down the ends of my toes. And I started to laugh and I laughed and I laughed. I laughed so hard. I threw up. I laughed so hard. I don't know if you've ever laughed that hard, but that's exactly what I did. And it did something for me. And I found out something really interesting after I gotten sober that it only does this for about one in 10 people, about 10% of the population. It's a little bit lower than that, but just for the sake of, you know, just understanding 10% of the population are alcoholics. Most of the people don't get this kind of reaction where all of a sudden, did it not make me feel like a turd with eyeballs anymore or made me feel like you were better than me? What it did is it all of a sudden, it made me just a little bit better. And I absolutely love the effect of alcohol and drugs. I don't like them just a little bit. I absolutely love them. And I don't say that in a past tense phrase. I still love them. And if I could drink and get loaded and get away with it, I'd be drunk and loaded right now. But I can't because when I drink and I get loaded, I pay a really, really, really big price. It's not the price I was paying in the beginning, but it's the price I was paying in the end. And when that guy came up there and this guy, Mark, he was cool. He was just cool, man. I'm telling you, when I caught that buzz, man, it just made everything better. And it made it just so that I, I it just I can't even explain it any better than that. All of a sudden, it made me just as good as you and maybe just a little bit better. And if anything works that good, wouldn't you do it every living, loving chance you got? And basically, the best analogy I've ever been able to come up with is I was reading this particular uh, story uh, years ago uh, in a book. And there was a, a story about a monk named Dom Perignon, and he basically invented champagne. And what happened was his Dom was upstairs in the monastery and he was cooking up a batch. And basically what happened was he got down to the, the point where it's like he was working on it and drinking it, working it and drinking it, working it and drinking it, working it, sipping it, working it, sipping it. And he got really, really drunk and ends up falling down the stairs of the monastery. So it's like, tuk, 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 whack. And he's lying at the bottom of the monastery stairs and all the other monks come running up and they surround Dom. And they're looking down at him. I've actually been in that situation in a different situation, but very similar in a lot of ways. Looking down at him and they're like, Dom, Dom, what happened? And he looked up at them and he said, I have been drinking stars. And I don't know about anybody else in here to me, uh, besides me tonight, but that ran chills down my spine. It like, it's like the best analogy that I've ever been able to come up with is like this. It's like, I don't know if you've ever remembered that old Zen Buddhist joke. You know, the old Zen Buddhist is in New York City and he goes to the hot dog vendor and he says, make me one with everything. 
It was like that. It like made me one with everything. And if you, if you don't know the rest of the joke, the, you know, the, the Buddhist monk gives him like $5 and says, can I have my change? And the, and the hot dog vendor sends to him, change must come from within. I've always liked it. But anyway, that's just the way it is. You know, you got to have the rest of the joke. But anyway, that's just what it did something for me. And it changed me from the inside out. It gave me a spiritual experience in a lot of ways. It gave me a connection to things that I didn't know was going on. And it made things better. And if anything works that good, wouldn't you do it every living, loving chance you got? And basically, that's what happened for me. Um, I don't know if anybody here has ever heard uh, Father Tom W. Up, up in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco area. Uh, Father Tom says it like this. He goes, uh, alcoholism goes into three stages. The first stage is fun with no problems. The second stage is fun with problems. And the third and final stage of the games is problems with no fun. And I don't know about you, but that's the way it was for me. And in the beginning, I absolutely loved the effect. It didn't matter what it was. If you told me it would get me drunk, if you told me it would get me loaded, if you told me it would catch me a buzz, I would take it, drink it, huff it, puff it, shoot it. I didn't particularly care. I'm like a garbage disposal, you know? And I know I'm not the only other person like that in here besides me tonight. Is there anybody here tonight besides me that smoke banana peels? There's usually at least a couple people, you know? And, uh, and th there's even a song. Do you remember the song? It was by a group called Donovan. The song is called Mellow Yellow. You know, they call it Mellow Yellow. And it's like, I used to think to myself, if there's a song, it should work. I felt cheated by that. You know, I'd smoke it, nothing would happen. But that's just the way I am. I'm also the kind of person that when, when, when I walk into your house, your vanilla, your vanilla extract is in danger. Only a real alcoholic is going to catch that because vanilla extract is about 40 proof, maybe a little bit less. But hell, if you're having a bad day and you can't find anything, you can't, you can't locate anything, and you're, and you're jonesing really bad, you know what? The vanilla extract will get you over the hump. You smell like cookies for a couple of days, but hey, you know what? We'll do anything, you know? And that's just the way we are. That's just the way I am. Now, when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, basically what I did is I dropped out of school and I just started partying all the time. And like I said, I love the effect. I was never going to give this up. I love what it did for me, man. And it made everything good. And it made me cool. You know, I mentioned my friend Mark with the long hair uh, partying with me the very first time. He was cool. And all I ever wanted to be was cool. And here, here what happened was, is that all of a sudden, you know, I, it's like, even though I didn't really believe it, I guess I ended up being kind of cool in a lot of ways, you know, cool in the, in the party and party animal kind of way we look at ourselves sometimes, you know, but again, you know, there's nothing more self-deceptive than the practicing alcoholic, you know, and people would come by my treehouse and I only had one rule. You got to share with me. I love that rule. Man, I got drunk and loaded a lot for free. I would just sit up there because when you're 14, 15, 16 years old, you need a place to party. And people would come by my treehouse, man. And that was the deal. And so basically what I did is I dropped out of school and all I started doing was drinking and doing drugs all the time. I absolutely loved it. The thing is, is that if you drink and do drugs the way I do, well-intentioned, good-meaning people start kind of intervening on your life in a lot of ways. You know, nothing dramatic. And they're the people that kind of just care about you. You know, not necessarily even directly. You'd be surprised. Now, I don't know about you, but I always felt like I was being picked on by the police out there, by the, by, 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 the, by the establishment or whatever you want to call it, by the judges, by the probation office, by the parole officers, all those different things that are out there. But the truth is, is those people are not in those positions because they're trying to spoil our fun. You know, that's the way I looked at it. But the truth of the matter is, is they generally have servants' hearts, not all of them, but a big chunk of them have servants' hearts. And just to give you an example, what I'm talking about, and I'm going to kind of go back to like, like the people that really cared about me in the beginning like that, basically all my life and still do today, 
are like my parents, my close friends, my family, my brothers, my sisters, you know, the people that really care about you. And they were the, they're the ones that would start sitting there and they would start saying, cause, cause I'm partying all the time and I'm not going to school, you know, a couple, two, three years. Like I said, I was 15, 16 years old by this time. And they're like, David, David, what are you going to do with your life? You know, we're going, David, are, you know, are you just going to party and get loaded all the time? What are you going to do? And I used to hate that question with a passion. I always felt like I was cornered by it. You know, what are you going to do with your life? You know? And, uh, and, 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 I, and, and I didn't know how to answer it. And I was about 16 years old. Um, I read the life story of Jim Morrison uh, is if you don't know who Jim Morrison is, he was the lead singer of a group called the doors. Uh, Jim Morrison uh, uh, drank and used himself to death. He was the bad boy poet artist of the sixties, you know, uh, lead singer of a group called the doors. And they wrote a bunch of books about his life, but I got a hold of this one book about his life when I was 16 years old called no one here gets out alive, which is a line from one of his songs. And what happened was, is that in, in the book, they broke it up into three sections, the arrow climbs, the arrow flies and the arrow falls. And at the end of it, they find him dead in the bathtub in France at the age of 27 years old. And basically what he did is he used and abused himself to death with alcohol and drugs. I remember reading that when I was 16 years old and I went, oh yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna be a, a, a musical star, but what I'm gonna do, because I, I can't sing, I don't wanna come out of my tree, and I don't know how to play any instruments, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to drink and use myself to death. And I decided when I was 16 years old that I was going to die when I was 25 years old. Live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse, the James Dean theory of life. You know, that's what I decided when I was when I was when I was 16 years old. And basically what it was is now I have a pat answer to that question. that I feel so cornered by the question was, what are you going to do with your life now? I got an answer. I'm going to live my life like a rock and roll lyric. It's better to burn out than fade away. You know, I'm just going to abuse myself to death. That's what I told myself. But the truth of the matter is, is now I've got a pat answer that I to those people to that, to that question. I hate so much. What are you going to do with your life? You know, now I'm getting into the second stages of the, of the game, which is problems and fun. And I always like to say that if you have to have a drunk driving to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I got a drunk driving. Um, I got mine on a moped. Uh, if you don't know what a moped is, basically it's a motorized bicycle. Uh, you know, now that e-bikes and all that kind of stuff are kind of cool, but back in those days, you know, people had mopeds and, and, and not a lot of people, but I had a moped and I had gotten this, this perfectly good used vehicle when I was like 16, 17 years old. And, uh, and, and I got, uh, what happened was to see if anybody identified with this particular emotion. Uh, I'm at a party and I'm afraid I'm not going to get my fair share. I don't know if anybody else identifies with that. But I just felt like to myself that for some reason, if I was at a party, for some reason, you were drinking some of my share, whatever it was going to take for me to get there. I don't know exactly where there is, but you seem to be drinking my portion of it that was going to get me the rest of the way. And that's just the way I felt. Again, this is 2020. I didn't know that. That's just the kind of way that feelings work. And I went at this particular party I was at one night. There was a big ice chest full of beer. And I had this big P Army coat on. And what happened was is that every time I would go to the ice chest, I thought nobody was looking. And, uh, and, and what it was is I thought I was being slick. I think I was being cool. I thought I was getting away with something. I would reach into the ice chest and I would grab an extra bottle of beer when I thought nobody was looking. So it was like one for me and one for my jacket, one for me and one for my jacket. But it got to the point where I couldn't get any more beer in this coat. And what happened was, is that I turned to go to walk away 
And you can actually hear the bottles clanking and stuff like that. And I think I'm being slick. I think I'm being cool. I think I'm getting away with something. But again, you know what? In my mind's eye, I can see them saying, at least he's leaving. At least he's leaving. And what happened was I got on that moped. And when I got that moped, it was a perfectly good used vehicle when I bought it. But by this time, it was dying of alcoholism. I don't know if you've ever had a vehicle dying of alcoholism, but my moped was dying of alcoholism. It had no headlight. It had no, uh, for, for distributor wire, it had a coat hanger going from the distributor to the spark plug, which is fine as long as you don't brush your leg up against that thing. And everybody who's ever been kicked by a spark plug knows what I'm talking about, you know? And what happened was, is that I ended up getting on this moped and I went driving down the middle of Foothill Boulevard on a Friday night in Locker Center, zigzagging in and out of broken yellow lines, you know, at like nine or 10 o'clock at night, which is just, just drunk, you know? And the police pulled me over, you know, Woo! And the first thought in my mind when they pulled me over and look behind me is, gee, I wonder why they're pulling me over. You know, I swear to God, there's nobody more self-deceptive than the practicing alcoholic, you know, because I'm doing things. I'm, I'm coloring outside the lines. That's what I call it. I'm not abiding by the rules of society, you know. And, and, when, and when I get to the point where because I'm not abiding by the rules of society and I get singled out, I say to myself, they're picking on me. Why are they always picking on me? It's like that old song from the 50s or 60s, Charlie Brown. You know, why is everybody always picking on me? And that's just the way I felt. And they pulled me over and I got a drunk driving on that moped. I thought they wanted to impound my moped. I thought that was rude, but they impounded it anyway. And I remember actually going to court and, and they said, Mr. Delbus, now 16 years old. And they said, Mr. Delbus, uh, we need your driver's license. And I didn't have a driver's license. So what I did is I ended up going to get my driver's license, not because I saw the light, but because I saw, because I felt the heat. And that was the key there. I started feeling the heat. And, and what happened was I went out and I got my driver's license. And I was actually pretty proud of that thing. Even though they made me get it, I felt pretty proud of that thing. And I showed up for court like two months later because they said they're going to stick me in jail if I didn't get my driver's license. And I went up to court and they said, Mr. Delbus, did you get your driver's license? I said, yes, I did, Your Honor. And I showed him my driver's license. And you know what they did with my driver's license? They revoked it. I'm thinking, geez, why do I, why do, I do anything, you know? I'm always outnumbered. I'm always out, man. I always feel like I'm picked on, persecuted. You know, why don't they just leave me alone? The battle cry of people like me, you know? And that's just the way it was. You know, I'm also uh, obnoxious. I was, in, this was during what I call my vodka, the God stages. Uh, vodka, the gods is a Trader Joe's brand vodka. It's $4.99 for half a gallon. You could start paying off of chairs, but it got the job done, you know? And I would drink that stuff, but I would mix it with Rainier's ale and just get drunk all the time. And I would do horribly tragic things like the book talks about, you know, and when they, when they're just describing our behavior out there, you know, and they say that if, if, if that if anybody sees me, it creates for more drinking, you know, and, and that's the way it was. And what happened was, is I ended up getting a lot of trouble behind the booze. Um, I actually, I, I, I think it should be a topic of a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that, that what was your blood alcohol level when you got arrested? I think that would be a great topic for a meeting. I don't know. Mine was a 2.4. It's by, by no shakes, a great drunk. Um, I've heard people getting up into the threes. And I guess when you're, when you're blowing up in the threes, man, it's like bad. I mean, that's like, that's like blackout stages, you know, at 2.4, I was pretty drunk and I got a drunk driving on that, you know, but anyway, I did, I got into a lot of trouble out there. Um, I'm not what you call a career criminal, uh, but I ended up being just a nuisance and a pest. I got in a lot of trouble out there, but nothing major drunk in public having drugs, not, not taking care of parking tickets, you know, those kind of things, you know, but I was just a nuisance when I was out there, you know, but I was always in trouble with a lot of some degree, you know, but I started getting in a lot of trouble behind the booze. Like, and when I, and I started drinking all the time because I just, you know, I just get in trouble and I thought, well, I'll just drink. 
and I drank all the time for the next yet for the next few years. And, and, and I just kept getting into troubles because I'm not a 2.0 kind of guy. I like getting out where the grass grows and the wind blows or maybe 1.5, whatever is a nice, warm, healthy buzz. I would always pass shoot the mark. Remember, I was always trying to tell you I was trying to get there. But I had never got there. I always shot the mark all the time. I never got there. I, had, I was never, never either drunk enough or I was always so drunk I couldn't even stand straight. I was always out where the wind blows and the grass grows. That's where I would go when I would get drunk. And I never stopped. I didn't have a shutoff valve. I don't know if there's anybody else in here besides me that didn't have a shutoff valve. I didn't have a shutoff valve, you know? And that's just the way it was for me. And I got in a lot of trouble. I, I used to hit on my sister's 18, 19, 20 years old. I'd hit on my sister's 14 and 15 years old friends, which is just creepy if you think about it. That's the kind of stuff I would do. But the book tells me it creates for more drinking. I'm getting a lot of trouble behind the booze. And I'm getting, you know, like I said, the drunk drivings and all that kind of stuff. I'm getting in fights with people twice my size. And that's just the kind of stuff I do. And I can't stop, you know. But for me, the monster must be fed. I absolutely love the definition in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous of what an alcoholic is in the doctor's opinion. Basically, what the doctor's opinion says is that I have an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body condemns me to drink against my will, and the obsession of the mind tells me I don't have the allergy of the body, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Intellectually, that makes perfectly good sense. But the thing of the matter is, is that it's, it's got to be more than just about information. You know, all my life, all my life, People have been feeding me information, telling me things. And, and, and intellectually, it sounded like they were right. And I would say, yeah, you're right. But I'm basically just brushing them off when they say it. Because it's not that I didn't intellectually agree with them. Because deep down in my heart, it didn't apply. Now, I didn't know that. But that's just the way it was. I would, I, I would sit there and go, you know what? Based on your description of whatever you're describing about going on in my life, you're right. But deep down inside, something inside of me would sit there and say, nah, nah. It just doesn't apply to me. And, and, but I do. I love that. You know, it says we have an allergy to the body, obsession of the mind. The allergy to the body condemns me to drink against my will. And the obsession of the mind tells me I don't have the allergy to the body, thereby setting a terrible cycle in motion. And you might think to yourself, you know, that makes perfectly good sense. But the thing is, is it's not about just information. And I love this phrase. It goes like this. It goes, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted. It's about passion. It's about believing this thing in your heart. And believe me, I swear, man, there's no greater distance in the world than our head to our heart. It's only this much distance. You know, if you think about it from here to my tie chain to the top of my head, what is that? You know, 12 inches, 14 inches, maybe at the most, man. It's like oceans. It's huge. It's like the translunar gulf. It's like it's just between here and the moon, you know, which is abstract in a lot of ways. It's a quarter of a million miles. But to actually get it from in my head to in my heart, it's huge. And to me, I got to personify these steps. And if you've never seen this movie, I highly recommend it. It's called The Little Shop of Horrors. And in it, Rick Moranis is in it from, and he's a, he's a, he's a little flower shop guy. And what happens is, is he finds a plant from outer space that lives on human blood. What happens is he accidentally cuts his finger. And at the time, the plant was getting weaker and smaller and it's dying. And the plant starts getting the blood and it starts going, feed me, Seymour. And to me, that's the disease of alcoholism, you know? But inside of me, it goes, feed me, David. And the monster must be fed. And the monster's insatiable. The monster cannot be stopped. And what happened was I was getting a lot of trouble behind the booze. I've been drinking every day for about two years by this time. And I'm just obnoxious. I'm rude. I told you a little bit of the stories about that, the drunk driving, all this kind of stuff, the fights. I'm an unsuccessful suicide. I don't see any unsuccessful suicides in here tonight. I'm an unsuccessful suicide. And on and on and on. And all those things that we do when we're out there. And so what happened was is I need to quit drinking. But for me, the monster must be fed. And what I did is I switched to methamphetamines. 
And I love methamphetamines. I don't like them just a little bit. I absolutely love methamphetamines. And I used to tell my friends, dude, you should quit drinking. I haven't had a drink in six months. I've only been asleep twice, but hey, sobriety through methamphetamines, man. And I used to tell people that. But the problem is that if you do the way I do, you know what? There is no middle of the road. And the thing was, I'm living in my treehouse and I'm doing a lot of amphetamines. I'm not eating. I'm not sleeping. I'm staying up for weeks at a time. And what happened was is I built a room on top of that one, another room on top of that one. I ran cable TV up there. I had a telephone up there and I had it going on. I got down to 110 pounds. I thought I looked good at 110 pounds. And what happened was, is that, uh, you know what? I used to tell my friends, just, I would look at myself. You could see my skull in my face. And my friends would look at me and they go, David, you're getting too skinny. You know what I think to myself? They're just jealous. That's what I would think to myself. Again, nothing more self-deceptive than practicing alcohol. But the thing is, is that if you stay awake for long periods of time, like I do, strange and bizarre things start to happen. And what happened was, is that all of a sudden uh, I got real paranoid. And I'll tell you this right now. If you're really, really paranoid, being 20 feet in a tree is a bad place to be. And, uh, and I could see, it. I, and I, and all of a sudden I thought Care Bears were coming down from out of space to overthrow the world. I thought my parents were cyborgs, you know, I thought all this crazy stuff, you know, and the thing is, is when you're in that stage, it's all true. And, it, and I was having auditory and visual hallucinations and I was seeing all this different stuff and it, made, and it was just so bizarre. And I just convinced myself that it, everybody was out to get me. And I don't know if you've ever seen the very first Twilight Zone. It's called, it's called The Last Man on Earth. And he's like, where is everybody? And it was just like that. Where is everybody? And I finally convinced myself that maybe, just maybe, the drugs were having a bad effect on me. I decided I needed to quit, quit doing that. I, I started doing this mantra. I started going, no one's coming to get me. 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 And I finally convinced myself that nobody's coming to get me. But I'll tell you this right now. You know what happened, don't you? They came and got me. But it wasn't the Glendonark. It wasn't, it wasn't Care Bears from Outer Space. It wasn't my cyborg parents. It wasn't any of those things. What it was is the Glendon Narcotics Division. I told you I was going to try to have a little bit of fun with this, you know, and see if I can get this to come up real quick. Uh, I don't know if you can see this or not. Let me do this. And I don't know if you can see this or not, but you can see it right there. It says, man arrested in treehouse on suspicion of drug sales. I don't know if you can see that or not. It goes on and on. It tells a story. And this was my bottom. I don't know what your bottom was, but this was my bottom. And, uh, you know, uh, there's just real quick, there's a picture of me in front of my beer bottle collection when I was younger, just for fun. And uh, we'll go back on, we'll come back there right now. Anyway, so that's the, the newspaper article. I got documented uh, debauchery. I got provenance of my debauchery out there. That's what happened. I got busted and raided. Now, this was my bomb. They raided my treehouse. They didn't know how to raid a treehouse. I had to bring on fire truck, cops in riot gear, lots of 20 cops in riot gear. And my dad came out to see what was going on. And you know, it may cut off. How's that? Uh, is that better? Okay, cool. So anyway, so what happened was is that they 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 raided my treehouse, and uh, they what happened was is they arrested my father for obstruction of justice. And what happened was is when they arrested my father for obstruction of justice, uh, they stuck me in a holding tank with my dad, and this was my bottom. I know what your bottom is, but this was my bottom in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, and, and my dad's not an alcoholic. My dad is not a drug addict. All my dad ever did was love me unconditionally all his life. And what happened was, is that uh, uh, you think that would be enough. I think one of the big lies is this, that we used to tell, we tell ourselves when we were out there. Um, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. I think that's one of the big lies we tell ourselves when we're out there. And I could no longer believe that lie because my dad was in that holding tank and he was there because of me. And it wasn't enough. And I will, I'll tell you this right now. He bailed himself out. 
and he left me in there. And, and, I, and, I, and I threw down the ace. I said, if you bail me out of this, I will go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. My uncle was uh, 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 many years, 10 years, 12 years in the program at the time. And I went to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous based on my dad bailing me out of jail because I can do the very least I can and still get into heaven. And I was still out there for another two years. And what happened was, is my last two years out there sucked. And my last year out there, I kind of mentioned a little bit ago, 1988 was a tough year. I ended up going through a place called Impact House in Pasadena. Uh, I ended up going uh, through um, uh, uh, another place called um, American Hospitals, a detox. It was a 28-day spin dry. I didn't want to go. I was trying to stay, get, stay, I was trying to avoid a three years joint suspended. And they were trying to do, give me three years in prison. And finally, what happened was, is that on December 19th of 1988, um, I can't tell you what made that day any other different than the other day. But this is just one of my personal opinions. I believe that our sobriety dates pick us. I don't think we can we pick our sobriety dates. I believe our sobriety dates pick us. And I, I don't know. Like I'll go I'll go back to Father Tom. Father Tom used to say that that uh, uh, basically uh, going out there and drinking is like making love to a gorilla. Uh, you're not done till the gorilla says you're done. And I think that's absolutely true. You know, it's like uh, only an, only a non-alcoholic can start drinking on Christmas day and come back on new year's day. Uh, I had a guy I, I saw take a, a chip one time and I said, oh, I, he told me the story. I, I thought he had like two years and he had like, he had like a couple of months of sobriety. And I said, what happened? He said he had gotten together with a girl in Alcoholics Anonymous. He'd gotten a year and a half of sobriety. Uh, they were both in AA. It was boy, boy meets girl across AA campus. And basically what happened was, is they broke up and she got custody of all the Meetings. I don't know if you've ever lost custody of your meeting out there because of a relationship, but he lost, he lost custody of his meetings and he was lonely and he hadn't been to a meeting in a couple of months. And he said, Christmas came up, it's Christmas Eve and he was by himself. And he says, you know what? I'm going to start drinking on Christmas Eve because I'm going to come back on New Year's Day. And I asked him, I just, I just wanted to know the answer. I go, when did you get back? And he said, April. And I think that's a beautiful answer because he made it back. But only a non-alcoholic can start drinking on Christmas Eve and make it back on New Year's, you know, on New Year's Day. That's a non-alcoholic concept because once we start, it can't be stopped. You know, what stops us are, are a lot of things, but it's usually, it's usually not will. Occasionally will can do it, but not most of the time. Most of the time, once, once the game is on, we're off and running and we don't end until money runs out. We get arrested. We finally just get so hopeless and, des and desperate and willing to do anything that things that we need to do these things. And that's what happened to me. And so it was, it's like, that wasn't enough for me. I was out there for another couple of years in 1988 was my last year out there. And it was a bad year. And when I finally came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous on December 19th of 1988, I was willing to do anything, not because I thought it would help, but because I didn't know what else to do. And what happened was, is that I bought the package of Alcoholics Anonymous, not because of any other reason other than I was hopeless. And I hope if you're new here today, um, sometime during my talk that you just got, like I said, you just got a little bit of hope. And I started doing the stuff that you said around here. And people talked about a lot of different things, but the stuff that I would really kind of focus in on, you know, people would say, oh, you know what? They would talk about different things. But I started hearing what I call, if you've ever heard Mickey Bush speak, he talks about the beautiful repetition of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the beautiful repetition of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would start hearing people talk about a bunch of different things, but all of a sudden there'd be common threads. One of those common threads was, you know what? Uh, I came in here and I started praying to God. As a result of that, I seemed to stay sober. So I, I heard that from enough people who shared stuff when they would talk in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, speaker meetings, participation meetings, all these different things. That, that seemed to be something significant and important. So I started praying to God from every very first day of sobriety. They would talk about a lot of different things, and maybe they bring up the fact of the, uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is my big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know you can barely see it because of the thing, but that's the way it is. And, uh, and I got a copy of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it seemed, it seemed to me that that was significant. A lot of people talk about different things, but they say, get a, get a, big, get a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I got that. 
People talk about a lot of different things, but all of a sudden I heard that you should get commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous. People will talk about a lot of different things and they would say that, you know what, you should uh, uh, have a sponsor. And a sponsor is not like Marlboro or, 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 or Budweiser. And they put your name on the side of your car. You know, uh, a sponsor is somebody who's willing to take of their time and give of their time for fun and for free to take you to the big book. Like I mentioned uh, earlier today, what I do with the guys, just to tell you what my day started with today. I got up this morning and, and right now um, I'm taking a couple of guys through the book. And that's what we do. That's why I sponsor people. And what it was is uh, two guys showed up today, brand new guy, Jay. We started with the preface. Like, just like I said, I started with my other guy, Sean, you know, 10 years, 10 years ago, a year ago, still doing the same things. We started reading that. Um, another guy showed up, uh, my, my, my other guy, sponsor, Justin, and, uh, and he showed up at, at, at nine o'clock and we spent an hour going through. We're reading Bill's story on him uh, right now. Uh, Sean and I are in the middle of uh, two employers. We're reading two employers. Believe it or not, there's a lot of good stuff all throughout the book. And we're reading two employers and stuff like that. I think Bill, Billy and I are, are somewhere in the, for, in, the, in the forwards of the first or second edition or something like that. It's all these different things. And we start going through that kind of stuff. And that was my morning. You know, and then I got, I, I got up, I said my prayers. I said, I did the set aside prayer. I read page uh, 86 through 89. I asked God to divorce my thinking, divorce my thinking. I love that word. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word divorce, I always think of the, dis, was it, the dissolution of marriage. I might be saying that wrong, but you know what I mean? It's actually, if you look at the word divorce in the dictionary, it means complete and se complete separation. That's what that means. No contact. You know, I need to divorce my thinking of selfish and self-seeking motives. That's what I got to ask for, you know? You know, I get an opportunity to do something like this. If you like what I say, I say give the credit to God because that's where the credit's due. But if I said something here, and if you felt like it was a bit ego-driven, it might have been. And I try to see, you know, I take responsibility for that because we all got feet of clay in Alcoholics Anonymous. We all got feet of clay. You know, I, I was talking to this one guy this morning, and one of the things that I say when I'm sponsoring somebody is I say this. I say, I, It's like, you know, like I said, I mentioned, you know what? We're not getting married here. You know what? If you decide you don't want to work with these sponsor, you know what? It's okay. Um, and, and I'll tell you right now, I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to let you down. I absolutely guarantee it because you know what? We're not. The, we're just trying to be a service around here, which is why I take th people through the book. I'm not smart enough to do this thing on the natch. I need to take it through. Whether when we look in the book, where it tells me it tells us to pray, we pray. It tells us to read, we read. It tells us to write, we write. You know what? That's what we do when we go through the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm just giving them myself for fun and for free. The spiritual inconvenience of being of service around here. That's what we do around here. And, and, and one of the things that I've learned recently, you know what? There's a difference between making time for somebody and, 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 and actually giving of your time. And it might sound the same, but it goes something like this. When I'm sponsoring guys, and I've told this story a couple of times, and I realize I'm running out of time here, so I'll just let you know that I will be wrapping this up in about five minutes or so. But this is one of the things is, is that, you know, when I'm working with people and I'm doing these kind of things, you know what? I let them know that, you know what? I'm going to let you down and this is what's going to happen around here, but it's okay. It's okay for us to do these kind of things. It's just about being a service. That's what we do around. And, and I love what happened. I got a little off track here, but that's the way it was. I finally ended up doing these things. I, I, I started reading the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a sponsor. I started praying to God. I got commitments. I go on panels. I saw I have a panel this Tuesday at the local Salvation Army. I'm 33 years sober. It tells me somewhere in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love this. It talks about that, 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 that if, if, if we're not like diligent about, about this program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that, 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 we, that we, if we rest on our laurels, 
And I, I love this. I heard this at a meeting not too long back. I shared this and somebody said that they thought the laurels were their butt cheeks. I thought that was funny. I like that. The, the laurels are their butt cheeks, but our laurels are our past achievements. You know, at 33 years of sobriety, don't you think I got some laurel time coming? Don't you think I should let the young bucks take some of the responsibility or, or shouldering these things and going on these panels? The truth of the matter is, it's like, it's all right if I take them along with me and be a part of it. But I got to keep doing these things. It tells me in the big book, the Bacalogs Anonymous, right after it talks about those laurels, it says alcohol is a subtle foe. And it tells me that what I have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I looked up the reprieve in the dictionary. Again, spiritual tool is a dictionary. And it says that I have a temporary suspension on a sentence of death. That's what we have as alcoholics. We have a temporary suspension on a sentence of death. You know, and how, how temporary is it? We hear it at meetings all the time, one day at a time. I got to keep doing this kind of stuff. I still have a sponsor. I still go to meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I still pray to God. My wife is in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of her old timers came to her when she took a year of cake and says, what are you going to do in your second year? And she was waiting for the great wisdom of this old timer to tell her what she should be doing in her second year, in her advanced spiritual progress. And, he, and I love this answer. He says, you keep doing what you did in the beginning because it's the basics. Back to basics is what gets and keeps people like you and I sober. So when Pax calls, calls me and says, hey, David, can you come out to London on a Saturday afternoon and share your experience, strength of hope? My answer is always, of course I can. Of course I can. Because this is what we do in alcoholics. Sometimes we give it to ourselves for free and for fun, as, as Chuck Chamberlain used to say, you know? And as a result of that, it's almost like it's kind of like a residual that kind of sticks to us where we were unable to stay sober on our own. All of a sudden we are easily able to control it as long as we are willing to follow a few simple rules. And that's what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. We follow these rules and things keep happening for us. And we keep growing spiritually. And we keep getting better and better and better. And it talks about that. And amazing things start to happen. I got married in Alcoholics. Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, my wife's in it. I got two kids. I got a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old. You know, we only get them on loan. Hopefully, I'm hoping they're seeing what happens, that I carry a message of Alcoholics Anonymous into my home. It tells me in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that a much more important demonstration lies before us in our homes, occupations, and affairs. Homes, occupations, and affairs. Not just in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, not just at 202 or, 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 or 1002 in the UK or 202 in Los Angeles on the particular day with you guys. I apply it out there to the people on the road, to the people at the supermarkets, to the people at my job. My work knows I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, but the truth of the matter is, is they don't care. I can't tell them at two o'clock if this were on a Friday going, you know what, I can't come to work today because Alcoholics Anonymous needs me today. You know, sometimes I can work it out and I can use some of my vacation time. But the truth of the matter is, is that I do this as an advocation. This is not a vocation. My vocation is what pays my bills. But I'll tell you, this is the kind of stuff that runs my motor. I love this stuff. I love working with the new guys. I love being of service. I love going on panels. I love what happens around here. And I love seeing the lights come on and the newcomer's eyes. When you think to yourself, that guy's never going to make it. And all of a sudden they get 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, and the lights come on. Their tombstone is there and all of a sudden the lights come on and you see the growth happening and then they take a year and you almost want to take a little bit of credit for it, but you can't, but you can't take credit for this because we only keep what we have by giving it away. And it's such an amazing thing. I love what happens around here. It tells me in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that I have a host of friends, that I will have friends galore. 
I don't know what a galore of friends is, but I got it today, you know, and I can't wait to see what happens next, you know, and I wish I could take you down the path. I wish I could run down there. I wish I could, I wish I could sponsor all you guys for just a day and, and take you down the path with me. And right now, right here, you're all a part of my recovery and hopefully I'm a part of yours. And I wrap up my pitch pretty much with these last two things. And years ago, I had gotten this little poem. If you've never heard this poem, it's called The Touches of Master's Hand. It reminds me exactly of what people like me are like and what Alcoholics Anonymous does for people like us. And it goes like this. It was battered and scarred in the auctioneer, thought it was scarcely worth his while to waste his time with the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar, do I hear two? Two dollars, who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what now am I bid for this old violin, as he held it along with his bow? One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. Many a man whose life out of tune, a battered with burden and sin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul, the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. And I am that battered and scarred uh, violin. Hopefully the master's played me well and I'm going to ask you one last question. And sometime during my talk today, did you think to yourself, I've done that? Or even better still, I felt that way. Or maybe even the best yet, maybe you said to yourself, maybe this program will work for me too. Thank you guys for having me out tonight.